0: Today's scripture reading comes to us from Zechariah chapter 7 verse 9 through 10 and Isaiah chapter 61 verse 8. This is what the Lord Almighty said, "Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other, for I, the Lord, love justice; I hate robbery and wrongdoing." The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, if I haven't met you yet, uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we started a series a few weeks ago called the Go Campaign. Now, what is the Go Campaign and why are we doing it? If you turn to your bulletin on the inside front cover, there you'll see three things. You'll see a welcome, and then you'll see our mission, and then you'll see our vision. Your mission is what you want to do. Your vision is who you want to be as a result of fulfilling that mission. So who do we wanna be? We wanna be 21st century disciples who think critically and act positively. Now, I'm not going to go into depth into the uh, the vision of our church because we have an uh, annual sermon series on the DNA of our church every January, but I do want to highlight two things when it comes to our vision, and it's the middle portion and the last portion where it says, who think critically and act positively. Now, I would say that as a church community, we've been great about thinking critically, but I would say as a church community, we haven't been as good about acting positively. And therefore... The Go campaign is to serve as an initiative, a catalyst, for us to act more positively. To whom and to where? We say to three peoples the least, the last, and the lost, and to three places our church, our city, and our world. For the past few weeks, we've been taking a look at who the least are, and we've identified the least of these as those that are vulnerable inside of our church community. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be taking a look at the demographic of the last, who are those that are vulnerable in our city. And to do that, I want to talk about three animals that I shared with my community group this past week. And they are the praying mantis, the honey badger, and the panda bear. Did you know that it is socially acceptable for a praying mantis to devour their spouse? Did you know that it is socially acceptable for a honey badger to eat anything and everything? Did you know that it is socially acceptable for a mama panda bear who has twins to completely abandon one, uh, one child to attend to another child? Now, if humans were to act like this, if I were to eat Hannah for breakfast, my wife or if I were to devour anything and everything, or if I were to abandon one of my daughters totally to attend to another, what would you say? You would say, that's wrong, that's not right, that's unfair, that's unjust, and you would be right in saying that. Even my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Logan, has a sense of oughtness and ought not to do this. and so she'll say things like, my toy, not your toy. And lately she's she's been saying things like, Not nice when someone does something not nice, and she'll even discipline her dolls and she'll she'll go out to Moana and say, Moana, not nice, and she'll put her in the corner and she'll say, Two minutes, and she'll get a two minute timeout, and, and Moana is like looking into the corner wall. Even my daughter has a moral compass within her, telling her that this is right, that's wrong, this is just that's unjust. This is fair. That's unfair. And this is precisely where the conversation of justice begins, by identifying what's wrong, what's unfair, what's unjust. But the conversation of justice doesn't just begin and end there. It continues by making what's wrong right, by making what's unfair fair. By making what's unjust, just. To whom? To the vulnerable. Because there are certain demographics, certain peoples in our society that are more easily exploited than others. And so if you take a look at verse 10 in Zechariah, it identifies four uh, demographics in particular. In Zechariah, the prophet says, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor, do not plot evil against each other. The four demographics that are identified here are commonly known as the quartet of the vulnerable. And here they are the widow, the fatherless, and another way of translating the fatherless would be the orphan, the foreigner or the immigrant, and the poor. Now, how are we to treat this quartet called the, uh, of the vulnerable? In verse 9, the preceding verse, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. And so for this morning, I want to take a look at three things. Number one, what is justice? Number two, why should we care about justice? And number three, how should justice be properly administered? So what is justice? Well, before I define what justice is, Did you know that there are more than 2,000 verses in the Bible that talk about poverty and justice, which means that whatever justice is and however you think it's best administered, clearly, undeniably, God cares about justice, whatever it might mean. And if you take a look at Isaiah 61, which is also in your bulletin, Isaiah the prophet says, "'For I, the Lord, love justice.'" I hate robbery and wrongdoing. And here it is again. God says that he loves it, which means that, again, whatever justice is, it means that we can't be indifferent towards it. We can't be apathetic towards it, not if God actually loves what justice is. And so what is justice? Well, I like the way that the civil rights activist John Perkins put it in his book, Dream With Me, that can be found on the first page of your bulletin. And this is what Perkins says. Justice is any act of reconciliation that restores any part of God's creation back to its original intent, purpose, or image. When I think about justice that way, it doesn't surprise me at all that God loves it. And what Perkins is saying here is that when you take a look at the scriptures, one day God is going to take everything that's wrong and make it right. One day. He's going to take everything that's broken in this world, and he's going to fix it. He's going to take everything that's imperfect and make it perfect again. If God is in that kind of business, then we should be in that kind of business as well, restoring all of creation back to its original intent. What else can justice mean? Justice is also very simply giving a person what they deserve. And when you think about justice that way, justice has two wings— If justice is giving someone what they deserve, there are two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, it's giving punishment to offenders. So if someone commits sexual misconduct, if a male commits sexual misconduct towards a female, they should get punishment of some kind. It's giving them what they deserve. On the other hand, justice also is not only giving punishment to offenders, but it's giving care to the vulnerable. Now, when we think about justice from that definition, giving care to the vulnerable, we automatically think, no, 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 that's not justice, that's charity. But when you take a look at scripture, caring for the vulnerable actually fits under the rubric and umbrella of justice. Here's just one passage that demonstrates this. In Matthew chapter 6, it says that when we give gifts to the poor, it's an act of righteousness. Which means, then, when we don't give our gifts to the poor and neglect them, it's an act of unrighteousness. It's not right not to care for the poor. And so caring, giving care to the vulnerable, is actually an act of justice from a biblical definition. If you take a look at the first page of your bulletin, again, Tim Keller in his book Generous Justice says this, there is an inequitable distribution of both goods and opportunities in this world. Therefore, if you have been assigned the goods of this world by God and you don't share them with others, it's not just stinginess, it is injustice. My two daughters have probably a 300% or 400% better chance of being successful in life simply because they're my daughters because I have a higher education, because mom has a higher education, she even works in higher education, therefore, they're gonna get a higher education, they're gonna have better networks, they're gonna get a better job, they're gonna make more money, they're gonna be more successful in life. So it's not a level playing field at all, which is why Gary Haugen, the CEO and founder of IJM, once said that justice is the right use of power. And what is power? Knowledge is power. And when I take a look at this room, I know that we are not only an educated congregation, but we are an overly educated congregation with a lot of knowledge. And so the question is, if knowledge, if, if, if justice is the right use of power and knowledge is power, my simple question to you this afternoon is this, how are you using the power that you have? Because if justice is the right use of power, injustice then, is the wrong use of power. What is the wrong use of power? Using your power exclusively for yourself or at worst, using your power to take away someone's life, liberty, labor, and freedom. So this is what justice is. Now here's the question, why should we care for it? Well, I like the way that Tim Keller puts it in his book, and uh, when he goes speaking around the the country and the world, or whenever I I go speaking, sometimes people say, uh, how do you want to be introduced? And so I'll say something like, "Um, just say, my name is Aaron, Uh, I'm a husband, a father of two, a pastor at Exilic, something like that. When you take a look at the scriptures, and you ask the question to God, God, how would you like to be introduced? When you take a look at Psalm 68, verse 5, he says, I would like to be introduced this way. I am a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. That is who I am. This is how closely God identifies with the vulnerable, but not only identifying with the vulnerable in this way, but he actually takes up their cause as well. What's another reason why we should care about justice? Not simply because of who God is, but also because of who we are. And so if you take a look at the first page of your bulletin again from a very well-known man, Martin Luther King Jr., MLK says, the whole concept of the image of God is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. This gives him a uniqueness, it gives him worth, it gives him dignity. And we must never forget this. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black, is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. Now, I want to contrast this with one of the most prolific thinkers in the 20th century, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who was an associate judge of the Supreme Court. And this is what Oliver Wendell Holmes says, From a secular worldview, there is no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. The world has produced a rattlesnake as well as me, but I kill it if I get a chance. And the only reason is because it is congruous to the world I want, the world everyone is trying to make according to one's own power. Do you see the difference? Why should we care for one another, in particular those that are disenfranchised and marginalized? It is because we are all made in the image of God, regardless of religious beliefs, race, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status. We are all connected to one another as image bearers of God. We are all God's masterpiece, albeit a broken masterpiece. That is why we are called to care for one another. A few years ago when I lived in downtown Los Angeles, I lived two blocks away from a neighborhood called Skid Row. And if you've never heard of Skid Row before or been to Skid Row, it is the highest density of homelessness in all of America. And I live two blocks away from there. And so I started something with a group of people called Cuticles and Clippers. And every month we would go to Skid Row and we would cut hair for the homeless, and we would do manicure work for men and for women. And, uh, and so there were actually, we would just do it in an open parking lot, and there were just, there were a ton of homeless people. And so I was one of the, the barbers. I'm retired now, so don't ask. I, I was one of the barbers, and uh, I mean, there were so many people. There were, sometimes I would have 20 people on my list alone that wanted a haircut. It takes about 15 minutes per haircut, do the math. Four people per hour, 20 people waiting, five hours. So occasionally I would do it a little bit faster than normal just to speed up the, the time because there are so many people waiting I haven't even eaten yet. And occasionally a homeless person would say, hey, 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 I don't want to cut like that. I want it more high and tight. Or I want it this way. I want a better fade. I want, it more, I want it closer to the skin. And a part of me thought, hey, buddy, you get what you pay for. This is completely free. You know that, right? And there was another part of me that thought, but you're homeless. Why do you care what you look like? Obviously, you haven't showered in months. You don't smell the best. What do you care what you look like? And yet, the more often I would go to Skid Row, the more often I would touch them and their hair, They had a sense of dignity and worth. Now, where did that sense of dignity and worth come from? Their career? They didn't have a job. Their cars? They didn't have a car. Their houses? Their clothes? Their looks? No. Where did their sense of dignity come from? From the fact that I'm a grown-up germ? A sophisticated baboon? Where did their sense of dignity and worth come from, even as someone that is marginalized by our society? From a Christian worldview... We think that they have a sense of dignity, even if they might not know it, because they are made in God's image. They are made in God's image. Regardless of how our society treats them, they intuitively know that there is something special, divine, and magical about them. And if they know that, and you know that, that is one of the reasons why we must all care uh, for one another. I want to read you the final quote from... Uh, Duke Kwan, who is a fellow PCA minister, and Duke says that biblical justice is love for my neighbor's body. The neglect of justice is commonly rooted in a deficient biblical anthropology, according to which one promotes the well-being of souls denuded of human flesh. Divine love makes body-soul image-bearers more truly human, not less why should we care about justice? Number one, because of who God is. Number two, because of who we are. And number three, because of how God treats us when we are vulnerable, when we were poor, when we were weak. Now, you might be thinking, I've never been poor in my life. I've never been vulnerable in my life. I actually have a sense of power. When has God ever done this for me? Well, in Jesus' most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, he says a very iconic phrase called, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now, what does that phrase mean? Well, I like the way that Keller puts it when he does the contrast of what it means to be poor in spirit, and that is to be middle class in spirit. You know what it means to be middle class in spirit? A person who is middle class in spirit has the attitude that because of my hard work, My ambition, my diligence, because of my hustle, I got to where I am. I don't understand why other people can't do the same. And so there is almost an apathetic, indifferent, and I would say an attitude of hubris towards those that are not like them. But in Scripture, it says that we are all poor in spirit, because the poor understand that Everything, that, everything good that they have in life was not a result of their hard work or their contribution or their hustle or their performance, that everything that they have in this life, including salvation, is a gift from God. It is an act of grace and mercy. And to illustrate this, I want to tell you a parable that is not found in the Bible. And it's about a penniless and hungry orphan boy who one day stole a car. In order to sell it. But this orphan boy was not very good at driving, and so he crashed it right into a tree. And so the cops came and found him, you know, driving a car that he shouldn't be, and they took him back to the police station. The next morning, the orphan boy was standing before a judge. And unbeknownst to the orphan boy, that car actually belonged to the judge. And so the judge said to the penniless and hungry orphan, you have two options. Number one, you can pay for all the damages and debt and go free. But if you can't, you must go to prison. But the judge, seeing that the orphan boy was hungry and penniless, the judge stepped down from his bench and he said, but there is a third way, another alternative. And he says to him, my son will actually pay for all of your damages and debt in your place under two conditions. Number one, you must plead guilty to all that you have done. No excuses. You must come clean and plead guilty to all that you have done. And number two, you must acknowledge that it is my son that paid the price for your debt that you could never pay because you are so poor. You see, justice is treating someone the way that they deserve. You know what grace and mercy is? Treating someone better than they deserve. And this orphan boy is treated better than he deserves. And you know what? We are treated better than we deserve as well. How should we be treated then? Well, when you take a look at the scriptures, because of our shallow character, our immature pettiness, and our misconduct, what we really deserve is the wrath and judgment of God. But instead of getting the wrath and judgment of God, we are treated far better than that. Instead, we experience grace and mercy. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus took the wrath and judgment of God in our place, and the justice of God then, what we deserve, was satisfied and assuaged on the cross because of what he did in our place by taking all of our sins our shallow character, our immature pettiness upon himself, and we are now treated as sons and daughters of God as if we had never sinned like this before. And I'll tell you this, if you get that, where it's not just cognitive theology in your head, but deeply resonates and is anchored into your heart, if you understand that you are a recipient of grace and mercy and grace and mercy flows to you, guess what? It also has to flow through you as well. You know what that looks like? Here's what it looks like. When you see a poor and vulnerable person, you don't just see a poor and vulnerable person. A real Christian, when they see a poor and vulnerable person, they see a mirror of themselves. Because I was poor at one point, and I could never pay for the debt that I owe, but Jesus paid the debt in my place. When I see a vulnerable person, you know what a vulnerable person is? A vulnerable person is a person that can't save themselves. And when I could never save myself and I needed a savior, Jesus came and he came and saved me. And therefore, when I see someone now that is poor, vulnerable, and weak, what I'm really looking at is a mirror, which is why I think that they are our greatest teachers. Now, here's the question How then should justice be administered? What I would say is on two levels. On the one hand, it should happen at the individual level. On the other hand, it should happen at an institutional level. So on the one hand, it should happen on an individual level. There is a sense in which uh, when we gather together on Sundays as a body, we're one body. But after service is over, Monday through Saturday, as we gather, you scatter to all different sectors, squares, and spheres of life. And the place that we spend the dominant amount of our time is where? Our work. And so here, if that is the case, we have to think creatively and have a new vision for how we can parlay our careers to help the vulnerable. Or if not our career specifically, our skill sets in a way that can help the vulnerable and the marginalized. And so it might be if you have a background in medicine of some sort, going on a medical missions trip. It might be, I have teacher friends that purposely don't take affluent jobs in an affluent school. They purposely move into a neighborhood where they're going to take a $20,000 hit on their salary to fight (laughs) systemic racism. It might be that you're a lawyer or graphic designer and you do pro bono work for a nonprofit. It might be that you care care for the poor and you volunteer at the Bowery Mission. These are all individual ways that we can help Uh, fight the tide of injustice. Now, if I were to end the sermon right there and say, off you go, I'm pretty sure that not a thing would happen. And a part of the reason for that is that I've given you a vision, but it's a very shallow vision. And one of the things, because I'm not as a pastor, what, what is our job on an institutional level? Our job is to equip the saints And so if I were just to give you a a short oral speech on go and do this and that, you're not going to do it. And so there has to be something else that we as an institution can do to give you support systems and legs to this. So I want you to know that as an institution, one of the things that we're carefully thinking about right now is a program on faith and work. Now, this is still very embryonic, and I don't know how it's going to be fleshed out. It could be lawyer cohorts, doctor cohorts, advertising cohorts, where we're all thinking collaboratively together so there is a sense of collegiality and unification. It could be stuff like that. I don't know, but I want you to know that we are actively thinking about this because there's one thing I do know from talking to everyone here outside of our church and with other pastors. I thought that the number one reason why New Yorkers were discontent with their job was because of salary, and it turns out that's not the case at all. The number one reason why all of us are discontent is because we don't find our jobs very meaningful or fulfilling. And if that is the case, we need to do something to help parlay our careers and our our skill sets in a way where we can find a sense of fulfillment more and more. What else are we doing as an institution? This year, we have 12 community groups. Our 12th one started this past week. Every community group this year is sponsoring a Compassion Child. And if you don't know what Compassion International is, they not only meet the physical needs of children, but also the spiritual needs of children as well. The 12th one started this week. You know what would be really cool if that community group sponsored a kid from Indonesia Especially after all that 's taken place, next year, if we have eighteen community groups we 're going to sponsor eighteen new children, which means that in two years time we are going to sponsor thirty compassion children and My hope and vision is that as a church, we can sponsor hundreds of children that are under-resourced. What else are we doing as an institution? On November 4th, we have a human trafficking event with our very own Sally Hahn, Richard Lee, another buddy of mine, where they're gonna talk about trafficking in our city and in our world. And to quote my friend Richard, how are they ever going to believe in Jesus? How are they ever going to be set free from their sins unless they're set free from the beds that they're enshackled shackled in first? And so there we have another opportunity of how we can end modern day slavery. And last but not least, you know, this morning I woke up and I, and I looked out the window. And I looked out the window and I saw four homeless people that were sleeping on grates. Do you know why they were sleeping on the grates of the sidewalk? Because if you sleep on a grate, it's warmer because they get all the heat from underground, the underground subway. This winter is one of the most harshest seasons for homeless people. And one of the things that we are actively thinking about is how we can meet the physical needs and the spiritual needs of those that are homeless in our city because they are everywhere. And so stay tuned for that as well. Let me close by uh, quoting the words of Jesus himself when he was once asked a question, teacher, rabbi, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responded by saying, it is to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here, the ordering matters. The ordering of the pairing matters. First, he says love God, and then he says love people. If you really want to love people the way that they deserve to be loved, we first have to love God. But you know what? How can we love God the way that we ought to? We first have to know that we are loved by God. And unless that melts our heart, the the love of God the grace and mercy that we have been shown. Until that happens, we cannot show grace and mercy to others. But the more you experience the grace and mercy of God, it gets easier to liberally dispense it to other people. Let's pray together. Lord, I realize that justice is a hot-button word that's in vogue in many ways, and sometimes we sort of use it frivolously, and sometimes we administer it wrongly in the name of good. And at the same time, there are others of us that have an indifferent and apathetic attitude whenever we hear the word justice as well. And it is my prayer that you would give us a sense of balance, understanding that we are justified by grace and through faith, and yet at the same time, justice must go hand in hand in that. And so it is my prayer that you would help us to have compassion on one another, particularly those that are vulnerable and hurting this season. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.